AVXL episode 161 was recorded on November 18th, 2021. QD OLED TVs next year. Robert in the 10 meter HDMI cable. Patrick versus Standing Waves. And we're going to talk about quite a bit more. Don't forget to email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Heads up, next hangout for our patrons is Sunday, November 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. See you there. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. I am fascinated by 100 to $130 true wireless in-ear earbuds. But that's all I'm going to say about that right now. Yeah. Because... <laughs> It's crazy. It's crazy how many there are. It's crazy how many are utterly atrocious. And it's delightful how many of them are actually pretty good. I keep reading about how the young kids nowadays would prefer headphones with cords, especially for their mobile devices. Simply so they don't look like someone who wears wireless earbuds, perhaps maybe in a suit, maybe in a downtown financial district. (laughs) Anyway. That was also I s- somebody writing an I article about young people rather than just asking them straight up. Where was that link? Because I saw that <laughs> immediately went, oh, like, oh. I was <laughs> laughing. A... Oh, it's the Wall Street Journal. Yes. Mint. Yes. You and I read the same are article. AirPods That's hilarious. Out? Why cool kids are wearing wired headphones. I cannot trust that. It's like, I don't believe they actually had quotes or interviews with any young person there. Since I know a few young people... I'll go straight to that source and take their word for it. It's also funny when they're like working on the assumption that all children use AirPods. It's just like, oh, you know, yeah. Find a teen. Talk to a teen, damn it. Exactly. (laughs) They are informed. They know what's going on. Hi, we're two middle-aged men contemplating the joy of watching kids be kids, especially I'm doing it at incredibly close range. You teach classes uh, on a weekly basis to a group of youngsters. Now all I can think of is, uh, I can see the actor's face, but I can't think of his name. Hello, fellow youths. (laughs) Steve Buscemi. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my goodness. We generally talk more about, you know, hardware and audio and setting things up and but yeah, I've, uh, I, yeah, I I got nothing. <laughs> Can you see that? Ooh, is that your COVID lollipop? I basically got the sniffles last night and a minor cold. You may be able to tell in my voice. And the first thing the uh, roommate threw at me was a instant COVID test. <laughs> Did you have to pee on that stick? No, I had to uh, <laughs> shove the swab up each nostril and then stick it in the in the fluid and wait for the uh, reaction. One line or two lines to appear, and uh, it came back negative. It's a Thanksgiving miracle. It is. <laughs> it seems to be a regular cold. <laughs> Yay. Uh, I'm all vaccinated, though. I, got, I just had my flu shot. Just had all my other shots. I'm waiting uh, on a booster if I need one. Or when I need one. We'll see. My wife has laid down very distinctive terms about me having a flu shot if I'm going anywhere near CES this year. But... It's part of my trips to CES every year that encouraged me to start getting flu shots. I literally was spending about two months a year being ill, typically after the trip to Vegas, and then typically with some other travel-related 
mass convention <laughs> where everyone's just spreading germs left and right. And yeah, I have no problem for myself personally. The flu shots keep that kind of sickness to maybe a couple days out of the year instead of just That's a, a plus. Yeah. Instead of a couple of months or a few weeks, I get my time back oh my so I can look at more pixels. What do you want to start with? Your new toy. Oh, the QD OLED rumors or my happy dance over uh, 4K UHD Blu-ray sales for the holidays. I'll jump in with that 10 meter fiber HDMI cable that I recently picked up. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I said what brand it was. It happens to be a Cable Matters product. A 10 meter fiber cable, HDMI, supports up to 4K 120, AK60, including all the special game formats like variable refresh rate or auto low latency. All of that's compatible, including eARC as well, I believe. And I'm not really kidding anyone. I picked this cable specifically because, at least in terms of cost per foot, this was one of the most affordable options out there. And this particular cable happens to be a 10-meter cable. I've seen these up to much longer if you absolutely need something longer than that. However, uh, for about 100 bucks for the 10-meter version of this cable from Cable Matters, that was anywhere from 50 to $100 cheaper than many of the other brands I was looking at that, you know, didn't look totally suspect, at least by perusing the online ads. Anyway, I hooked it up to my computer and I fired off a 4K 120 signal directly to my TV and it seems to work just perfect. And I'll be nice. testing that out some more. But so far, uh, it's a cable that seems to work just fine with the fastest bit rates and resolutions and everything I can throw at it at any particular distance. Uh, when I say a fiber cable too, what I'm saying in this case is that each end looks like a regular HDMI cable. It has the regular connectors, right? It's the part in between that is actually fiber optic. And then built into each of those interconnects, it actually uses some of the voltage from the cable itself to create the laser light or led light or whatever they're doing the signaling with through that fiber optic to do the transmission in between those two points. The magic. This particular cable is not rated for in-wall use, but it has a beautiful woven sheath on the outside of the cable itself. It appears at first glance to be of decent quality, but I've had so many cables in the past that look Looks good right out deceiving. of the box. True. They look good right out of the box, but within like two weeks, you have things coming apart. And uh, again, I'm early in the honeymoon with this one. I will be putting it to good use. Not often with 4K 120, mostly right. with 4K 60 and formats like HDR 10 and Dolby Vision. Big focus of this is we talked about that Linus Tech Tips video review where they used the cable tester and they found out there were so many problems with HDMI cables. And especially once you got up to 10 feet, a lot of cables just fall apart at 4K 120 or 8K rate. If you have a fair amount of distance between your television and the source, whether it's an AVR or an Apple TV or whatever it is, you may want to invest in something like the fiber HDMI cable or powered HDMI cable. But beware, if, as we move towards you know higher 4K speeds and 8K stuff, the tolerances are getting tighter on the cables, and some of the cables are not worthy of the tolerances. Totally. To... Uh, mixed metaphors there and that's a good point too i forgot to mention that these are often called active cables and this particular kind of active hdmi cable is fiber optic based some are still done with very thin wires to make a thinner cable but they're doing different signaling so to speak through that cable uh or amplified signaling of some kind that helps get it through compared to just plain copper when you're pushing 
large amounts of data at longer distances. That's where you need to pay more attention to it. And like we mentioned last week too, for practically any six foot or two meter cable, it's going to be compatible with just about everything out there at any good price point. As long as it's not a totally suspect cable, uh, you should be fine. But <laughs> but if and when you need to go the long distance, that's where you want to be looking for that active cable design or something in this case, like a fiber cable. I'm digging it. Hopefully I'll have it for years and we'll have very little reason to ever need to replace it. And it's nice and compact too for a 30 foot cable compared to my, I have a 40 foot HDMI cable laying here that's active. That thing's a bit of a beast uh, to keep it in a backpack all the time if you're using a gear bag and things like that. This fiber optic cable coils up quite nicely and is about literally half the weight, so to speak. So that's the other benefit for me. Portability <laughs> and performance. It's nice when things actually pack down into a reasonable size. Hey, thanks to Brian uh, for the link to Slick Deals. Uh, he emailed askitabexcel.com. That Slick Deals link links to Groove, and it is a sweet deal for three, three, three 4K UHD discs uh, for 30 bucks, which includes, ladies and gentlemen, Robert Heron's favorite movie of all time, The Big Lebowski, Casino, a movie of my childhood that all of my firefighter friends laugh at, which is backdraft, at least the firefighting scenes. Uh, the rest of it they find amusing. Uh, King Kong, American Made, How to Train Your Dragon, Apollo 13, 47 Ronin, which I would never admit to liking if I did like it. <laughs> even, some movies are so bad, even I can't own up to them. Oblivion, which is a killer, killer abusive test for your subwoofer if the right parts. An incredibly bad movie I will admit to loving way too much, which is Battleship, the original Incredible Hulk, and a whole bunch of uh, stuff that's all over the map. Pacific Rim. And what else do we have here? That's pretty cool. Ooh. Three for 30 bucks. Jason Bourne, the Bourne Ultimatum, the Bourne Legacy, the Bourne Supremacy, the Bourne Identity. There's uh, a lot of Matt Damon going on here. <laughs> Pitch Perfect, Pitch Perfect 2, Pitch Perfect 3. It goes on. This is my favorite part of the holidays is, is getting, uh, it's not the family time or the meals or the camaraderie or the spiritual aspects. It's all about getting the cheap uh, 4K UHDs. <laughs> without a doubt i also appreciate the fact that all of these titles are not only the 4k ultra hd but it also includes a regular blu-ray so if you want to share it yeah with a friend and i'm curious do those digital certificates still work they still include them with every disc i buy but i'm not sure if those services are still active i will do some investigating and find out <laughs> i was gonna say so speaking of uh investigating uh or maybe we should just flat out call it rumor mongering. We've talked about the idea of QD OLEDs. Mostly you've talked about it. I've sat and said, uh-huh, a lot, and occasionally asked a question. But it seems like CES 2022, Sony and Samsung are going to show off QD-enhanced OLED displays. You think this is legit? Because I think it was up at flatpanelshd.com, the... Uh, the most recent article. Exactly. They posted an article that was highlighting some of the stories currently coming out of Korea, signaling very strongly that not only is Samsung going to show off their new quantum dot enhanced OLED tech at CES in a couple months, Sony's going to be there as well with some products of their own. Apparently, they've had these in hand now for a while, and they've developed a product that they are ready to show to the public. Whoa. Really, what we're looking at compared to today's OLED TVs is the potential 
for removing what really is a performance sapping color filter layer in that stack design. The very front layer of an LG OLED TV is a colored piece of plastic that light is shining through, and there are losses associated with that. And by being able to use something like a very well-engineered blue OLED material to be your blue color point or your blue subpixel, so to speak, and then using that light and converting it almost with perfect efficiency, quote-unquote, using quantum dock technology, that gets you the red and the green then. I am just curious to see how good Samsung's blue OLED material really is in terms of its longevity and absolute brightness as well. If they can truly remove a color filter layer from this OLED stack design, even if their blue OLED material isn't as bright as LG's, Mm -hmm. getting rid of that color filter will probably enable them to then push more light because they're not having to shove it through that. Anyway, it's going to be neat. Seeing Sony and Samsung showing off a new display tech will make for a good time. And I am curious to see how they'll be positioning these displays in terms of where they end up in the market. I have also seen plenty (laughs) of rumors for larger and larger OLED televisions coming from Chinese manufacturers using printed technologies, literally inkjet-style printing technologies, which means getting the process closer and closer to a room-temp technology and making them simply cheaper at larger sizes. So I am sure... That's a big deal. We will see a few of those there as well. And I'll be curious to see if, you know, the bigger OLED companies like LG, of course, and Samsung actually have any updates in terms of what they're doing in terms of an inkjet style printed OLED television design. Because that seems to be one of the ways of getting this technology into more people's hands at lower prices, even if it's not maybe the at the current state of the art in terms of being comparable to the best OLEDs out there today. Uh, it's coming along quicker than I thought it would it could turn into a amazing size race and efficiency race and performance (laughs) race that will benefit us all. I hope to see more of them there at the show. We should also point out that some of these technologies we see at CES are right around the corner. And some of these technologies we see at CES are right around two or three years out, particularly thinking of Hisense's uh, ULED, the dual cell displays. People finally got to look at it October of this year. No. Yeah, October of this year. I think we saw those originally 2018 at CES. So some of the forward-looking, forward-looking, forward-looking stuff is more forward-looking than we than we would care to care for it to be, I guess, might be a way of saying it. I believe the Flat Panels HD article also mentioned that Sony and Samsung will likely ship these displays, if, in fact, this rumor turns out to be true, uh, sometime closer to November of next year. So while they oh. may introduce them, uh, we probably won't see them closer until fall or going into winter. That's still way shorter than some of the delays we've seen between the announcements and the actual products. So I'm down with that, man. And I'm hoping the rumors are true. That'd be cool. Yeah. So I talked about it a few weeks ago. Monoprice loaned me a, one of their uh, 13-inch THX ultra-certified monolith-powered subwoofers. These These are pretty crazy. They're like 2,000-watt amplifiers in the backs of these. We've talked about the CEA 2010 numbers and uh, talked about just how ridiculously low this thing goes in extended mode. Um, and uh, there's a, a whole bunch of things. I spent a bunch of time experimenting with this and working on sort of my subwoofer testing methodology, you know, because there's the CEA 2010 numbers, right? Brent Butterworth has done those for a bunch of magazines. Audioholics uses use those, uh, you know, Aaron's Corner. These are kind of standard measurements in a a free air or designed to emulate a free air environment where you are 
seeing the theoretical output or basically how good the subwoofer is. It is interesting, right? Because you take a subwoofer and you put it in a room and the performance changes. Duh. Monoprice's monolith subwoofers, they have a switch that's extended in THX mode. And THX mode, essentially, when you have a THX certified product, the THX certification uh, demands that there's no more than like 5% distortion at the lower frequencies of these subwoofers, which is Reasonable. a very small amount of distortion. The difference in extension or the difference between THX and extended mode is that you have higher levels further down, but with significantly higher distortion. Uh, essentially, your, your low end frequencies aren't as clean. Whether you can hear that or not, or whether you like the way that sounds, is a discussion I'm not going anywhere near at this moment. You know, some things to talk about in testing, I'm actually going to sit down and be mapping a, probably 20 different locations around my room. I, I, part of me would like to move my subwoofer a subwoofer length distance to, to, to sort of map out every single location in my basement. A very granular map. Oh, dude, uh, it was down somewhere between 8 and 10 dB at 40 hertz. Like there was a sinkhole in the frequency response. Uh, like somebody just made that chunk of spectrum just go away. That's a standing wave or a room mode where the direct wave or the audio coming out from the speaker runs into a reflected wave, right? Because the sound goes out, it hits you know the walls around you and it gets bounced back. And these sinkholes or these combinations of, of the waves, they come together in one way, they cancel themselves out. If they come away to, together in another way, they increase the sound level, the, the decibels, as it were. The audio has been reflected off a wall or a ceiling or some combination of all the walls and ceilings. Uh, they, they combine to make a node. And in this case, I had a really gnarly one, a sinkhole at like 40 hertz. That's which, huge. You know, stupid parallel walls and ceilings. It was crazy. Uh, 10 dB is a huge drop in volume. That is not the place to put that speaker. <laughs> no, no, because there's a lot of music at 40 hertz. Totally. Uh, that's a good reminder, though, because just because you find a good spot in the room for the subwoofer, it may right. very well not be the best position to get the best sound out of it. Right. Definitely don't want to pick a spot where you're losing 40 dB of amplification <laughs> or no, the no, sound takes a hit. 10 dB at 40 hertz, not oh, 40 dB. Thank you. Okay. Um, 10 dB is pretty bad. 40 dB would be, uh, <laughs> I think, beyond the scope of the tools I was using to measure. Um you know, but, but but this is also right. This is why we talk about the subwoofer crawl, and that's where you put the subwoofer in the prime seating position. You start a bass track, and you literally crawl around the room looking for the the spot where the bass, you know, like you know whether it's scales or a series of tones or or you know your favorite Shostakovich piece or whatever it is, uh, and you you look for the spot where that bass is the most. I don't know why I said Shostakovich, but uh, you know the where the bass is is most equal. Uh, and hopefully that spot isn't, you know, directly in front of your fireplace or a door or where the coffee table goes or something like that. But, um, it's an interesting experience. Part of the reason I did not do the subwoofer crawl with this 13 inch THX, uh, monolith subwoofer is because it weighs the better part of 150, 160 pounds, which is really difficult to move around even for me. <laughs> yeah. It's not exactly something you want to sit in a very nice seat too uh or without something under it i mean that's a heavy object with good corners yes. and as convenient it as it object. is to be able to take that subwoofer and put it in the spot yeah. you normally sit and then literally you can walk around the room then and yeah. that just uh is the way to go for getting that quickly set up it's such a neat trick yeah. it's just being able to you know trade positions with the subwoofer <laughs> so to speak i'm with you and it works so works pretty well 
the kind of inverse of this is putting multiple subwoofers in the room. And by doing that, you kind of spread out the sweet spot. The thing I've, I've been taught is, right, a single sub position for perfect bass at the prime listening spot, the platonic as in cave ideal of bass performance, uh, uh, you know, can leave people in other spots around the room with mediocre bass. And by putting multiple subwoofers in the room, two or three or four subwoofers, uh, usually you hear people talk about two subwoofers or four subwoofers, and by putting them in the four corners or the center of the four walls, depending on whose methodology you're using or what works best in your particular room, the idea is that you sort of have a larger sweet spot and the bass is more consistent over a larger area uh, where everybody's sitting. The other thing I was laughing about, and uh, I talked to you about this, and I talked to somebody else about this, is, you know, going from a speakers without a subwoofer to speakers with a subwoofer is pretty obvious. And I always laugh because there's a lot of speakers that sound fantastic, and then they always sound so much better with a good subwoofer properly set up. Kef, Elac, a dozen other brands I could think of, um, you know, because a, a lot of bookshelf speakers, and a lot of, actually, for that matter, floor standers, you know, the bass is really good down to about 50 hertz. There's a lot of monitors and bookshelf speakers where the bass is really good down to about 80 hertz. And things sound good, you know, especially if they get down to about 50 hertz. But having something that takes the load off of the low end of the speaker and takes, you know, extends the bass down closer to, you know, 20 or 30 hertz makes a huge difference. The other kind of obvious thing is going from a crappy or an undersized subwoofer to a quality subwoofer that's sized properly for your room. That also can make a pretty huge difference, especially if you have a subwoofer that does a lot of chuffing, has a lot of huffing at the port, or has heavy distortion at the low end. Other thing I started thinking about is going from a you know a decent sized quality subwoofer to another decent sized quality subwoofer starts to get subtle and you have to do a lot of listening. There aren't a lot of instruments that make noise below 30 hertz in most music. You know, there are a lot of soundtracks that go that low, but, you know, the cats were not speaking to me. You know, after I did a series of U571, there's a a series of gun fires at a ship and there's a boom from the gun and a bigger boom on the ship and then there's a whole bunch of depth charges. I don't think I've given too much out of a submarine war movie with that description. I don't think there's any spoilers there. Shock! There are depth charges in a sub-movie. There are definitely music genres with superior bass, if you really need the thump. But you're right. Cinema is probably one of the easiest go-to things, uh, especially when you can point someone right to a specific scene. Yeah. yeah, Here's where you're going to feel the rumble more than you probably will even hear it. Uh, Or or the beautiful combo of both. Yeah, and and I always laugh, right, because I think I've said this to you like three times in the last five years where I've been like, you know, you turn off the speakers and there's just not a whole lot going on with your subwoofer. It's really important, (laughs) you know, but there's just, you know, not as much going on down there below 40 or 50 hertz. I like big subs and I cannot lie to make uh, a terrible reference, uh, but properly engineered subs tend to be larger than you probably want if you want to get them down to like 20 hertz. Um, you know, RSL Speedwoofers, SFS, uh, they're 1000 Pro. Those are not huge subwoofers. They do a fantastic job getting down low. But if you really want the full-on cinematic reference experience, which is kind of a nightmare to me because uh, the cinematic reference experience is somewhere in the neighborhood of 105 or 115 decibels, which is permanent ear-damaging range. If you want to move a lot of air, you basically need a big subwoofer, which can be problematic to position in a non-dedicated home theater space. Possibly the other reason I really like big subs right now is our current home theater space is something like 6,000 cubic feet, roughly. 
in the sense, you know, we use maybe 200 square feet of 800 square feet of basements and, you know, maybe 1500 cubic feet. We could kind of think of as the home theater, but there's still 6,000 cubic feet of air down here. Not that I've measured it precisely, but that's pretty close to what it is. And that is a huge amount of air to excite at the low frequencies. It's not too hard to do it at the high frequencies. The bigger the room, the more subwoofer you need to kind of load the, uh, to push all the air around in a way that you can actually feel, which is an interesting experience. <laughs> totally. And I just remind people too to really take that advice to heart. The subwoofer in particular is something that yeah. can really influence the overall room sound and finding a decent spot for it that isn't degrading or falling into a hole, quote unquote, within a, a sound <laughs> node within the room is right. something that's not hard to figure out and it can really help even a modest system sound really uh, better and more even and get your bang for the buck, so to speak. I'll get more explicit or more detailed about that uh, Monoprice 13-inch THX ultra-certified 2,000-watt powered subwoofer in the none-too-distant future. But uh, I really just wanted to talk about a lot of just general rules of thumb. You know, and, and I'm sorry if some of those were a little obvious for some of you out there, but it always amazes me uh, the difference I don't know. I was just still blown away by how bad that one note in the room was. <laughs> it was kind of like, wow. You know, there's just a whole chunk of this baseline that vaporized. I should also mention that uh, the first generation 10-inch, 12-inch, and 15-inch THX ultra-certified monoprice monolith subwoofers are on sale right now. They're a pretty smoking deal. They have a, a new second generation, which has a very similar, if not the exact same performance, but with a different design for the cone to the driver. But the rest of the enclosure looks to be, and, and amplification specs, I believe, are just about the same. But, nice. Uh, yeah. So if you are like me, thinking about how it would be nice to have multiple subwoofers, inside of your giant ass basement uh so you can feel the depth charges <laughs> it's, it's it's always nice to find things on sale agreed hey and earlier this week i noticed that sonos has officially added dts support to many of its soundbar products and speaker products uh the verge reported this one is where i first saw it written up and i want to say when i was looking at the new beam gen 2 I noticed that it has support for DTS audio when my Roku Ultra reported that the Beam, the new updated Gen 2 Beam, actually supported DTS. Although it's just DTS digital surround, uh, that would include if you tried to feed it something like a true HD signal, you're just going to get DTS quality out of it. However, it's another format people have been waiting for. It's relatively popular, and it is actually supported on some TVs and other devices. If you have the Sonos products, do check that app and make sure your devices are updated. Always good to know. Totally. I don't know off the top of my head all of, uh, I don't have a giant list of Black Friday sales, but I will say uh, Kef, Elite, um, Elax Outlet is back. There's This is not a bad time to start shopping around for consumer electronics uh, for the holiday season. More sales than I expected. If you can actually buy the things you want, although availability seems to be, I'll knock on wood, uh, fairly good, especially having been in a couple of Costco's and Best Buy's in the last couple of weeks. The TVs True. are stacked up everywhere, uh, which is good because a few weeks ago, the TVs were stacked up nowhere. 
so it seems like, uh, at least for now, there is stuff you can buy. And we've seen also some deals on Denon AVRs and uh, a whole bunch of earbud and headphones. So if you have any you know questions about your holiday shopping, let us know. As always, camelcamelcamel.com is not a bad place to get an idea of what the price is and was for a lot of consumer electronics. I'll also say it again, I don't want to put anybody to sleep, but Amazon is often not the best place to buy things in terms of price right now. There are a lot of options. Uh, make sure the options actually have the product in stock, but there are a ton of options out there uh, for shopping for consumer electronics for the holiday season, and it's worth shopping around a bit. So, For me, when I'm shopping, I find that if I have a particular item in mind, I will look up what that average price has been recently, what a good price would be if it pops up. That way, if yeah. I see something in the store, I can just quickly glance at that price and go, you know, Black Friday or not, uh, is that a good deal right now for me and what I need? It's something to be aware of because, like we've also pointed out, when the Black Friday sales roll around, if you are relying strictly upon Amazon's pricing, you may notice that if you try to do a search for a particular product, it's a unique entry just for the holiday. Shocked. Shocked I am. It's not going to give you the long-term pricing data. And that's just something you should apply to any kind of shopping scenario. Know right. what the thing is that you're looking for and how much it really costs, even on a good sale day. And if you come across that price in person, Go for it, especially if you're a member of a big box store or a membership club like Sam's or Costco. That's where you can really get the deal, especially if it's sitting there right in front of you and you can walk home with it that day. It's always nice. <laughs> yeah. Or so. cart it out to the car and realize it won't fit in the back seat. And then you're getting creative. <laughs> Renting the U-Haul pickup truck. <laughs> or <laughs> taking more extreme measures I've seen. It's always good to have a pickup truck. We got a nice post from Buy up on Patreon.com. He says, uh, you mentioned wanting to know how to track the bandwidth used by each individual machine on a network. And yet, literally, you know, there are so many uh, devices right now. You know, are my light bulbs doing something weird? There's an easy way to find out if I can actually track the bits uh, moving in and out of the various devices in my house. So Buy says, I haven't used a consumer router in ages, so I can't speak to those, but OPN Sense can do it out of the box. From what I can tell, PFSense, DD-WRT, Untangle, etc. can also do it, but require additional configuring and or another machine. And he linked to a document up on docs.opnsense.org and uh, under the setting uh, or the heading Insight. So I want to give a shout out for anybody out there who's trying to figure out where all the bandwidth of their house is going. Um, well... Search OPN Sense, and you'll quickly decide whether or not it's a project that you are ready to tangle with, as the uh, as the case may be. Good stuff. Andrew Bradley also posted on Patreon.com slash AVXL. He says, have you thought about adding a yearly option in addition to monthly pledges? And I'll be honest with you, I had not. But if anybody's interested in that, do us a favor, post on Patreon or email ask at AVXL.com. And... Uh, do you want to talk some more about wall mounts or some of the challenges with wall mounts? Or It was just a quick follow-up to our discussion a week or two ago about, yeah, we were talking about in the scenario, is it okay sure. to actually attach a wall mount to drywall? And when I think about any kind of wall mount in general, I'm usually mm -hmm. gravitating more toward the articulating wall mounts that are on extendable arms. So you can pull the screen right. out and rotate it left and right. Those kind of mounts in particular, I would 
be less inclined to try to use drywall as a mounting surface for that just because of when that display gets pulled out you're suddenly creating a pretty good lever it puts all the more strain on something like that to the fasteners and the bracket itself however with most traditional standard tilt mounts they're going to be relatively close to the wall not exerting nearly the force you would have with something like an articulated mount so that's where it's just one other scenario. It, it, it's probably obvious to most people that something that can, you know, extend from the wall, of course, is going to apply more force than something right. that sits very close to the wall. But just one more thing to keep in mind when you're doing your mount. Don't be afraid. There's tons of options at all price points at good quality. It's just when you get into the largest screen sizes and the weights involved, like we discussed with sound bars being added to the bracket itself, you know, it can add up. And that's where you go for the stud, so to speak, I think was the message we were going for. <laughs> but if not, yeah. yeah. Anyway, go back and listen to that previous episode if you want to hear me wax nostalgic about some of the performance characteristics of drywall fasteners and how cool of a channel Project Farm on YouTube is. <laughs> oh, my oh, I love that channel. <laughs> That's my, <laughs> It's my favorite. I also had something come up last week too, more of a realization about modern computers and with this scenario of it seems to be now ever increasing wattages for GPUs. Huh. Uh, we're currently sitting at products you can buy today. Well, if you can buy them today, that literally suck down 350 watts just by themselves. And they're already talking about next generation products maybe going to 500 watts or about, say, 50% more. And in that scenario, I really become concerned and conscious of the fact that I do not leave a game on pause or sitting there being away from the keyboard or in a menu right. screen. Because when that's going on, I look down at the power reading on my computer. It's still pulling max wattage, even in those scenarios. I think game developers should have an easy method of implementing power reduction schemes in scenarios like these. Otherwise, right. I, uh, for the first time with this new build I have, I am consciously not letting anything just sit there running. If it's pulling down, you know, 500 over 500 watts in a paused menu, it just seems ridiculous. And I'm sure there are already techniques within the apps and the OSs to be able to do this and the driver systems. It's just a matter of uh, getting the word out there and making people more aware of it that, yeah, it's great to have a high-end workstation with a kick-ass graphics card, but if I'm away from the screen for an hour or two and that thing's just sitting there putting out 500-plus watts, uh, it's a nice space <laughs> heater. It's a significant waste of energy, too. So Yeah, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I would be way more concerned about all this if I were living in an off-grid situation with solar and batteries and wind and things like that, but... <laughs> If you're paying for the bills, just be aware of that. Yeah, just because you're on a pause screen and the game isn't moving or doing anything, it could very well be sitting in the background mining crypto coin for all you know, pulling down max wattage anyway. That's what I assume <laughs> it's doing in the background because it's like something like Microsoft Flight Simulator or a game like Borderlands 3 or any of these right. top tier games I see today. It Unless you exit the program completely, it just rides that graphics card as hard as it can for whatever purpose is going on in the background. <laughs> and oh again, goodness. it's just something I think everyone should be aware of. For me, it's more in my face because I route my computer and desktop hardware through an uninterrupted power supply that has a meter right, right on the front of it. And it makes it very quick and easy to tell when my 
system as a whole is going, you know, five or 600 watts. And if I'm on a pause menu, I don't want to see that. That's kind of outrageous consumption for being in, uh, for being in at idle. <laughs> totally. And it makes me just more conscious of it to know that, yeah, uh, don't leave that game just running. Uh, turn it off if you're done with it. Uh, and just be aware that it, it should be better than it is. And given the trend, like I said, with GPU development lately, it seems like the path to more frames per second currently is just throwing more wattage at it. And unfortunately, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got yeah. a you've got a 600 watt box on pause <laughs> for no reason or a reason that, that could be up. addressed yeah totally just my little thought of the day there in my illness <laughs> in my ch- if you got a question for us email ask at avxl.com tweet at robert heron at patrick norton or at avxl and uh if you need a hashtag pound excuse me hashtag Ask AV Excel works just fine. And uh, hey, you know, again, thank you to all of our patrons. Patreon.com slash AV Excel. Your monthly contributions make the show possible. And do us a favor. If you get a chance, let us know what you want us to cover. Let us know if you're curious about anything that's coming up. If you got holiday shopping questions or if you're just looking to make your system sound better, your headphones make you happier, or your screens make your eyeballs sing with joy. Because everybody's eyeballs should sing with joy, whatever that means. <laughs> with that, weirdness aside, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL. <laughs>